Uh, open your Bible with me, if you have one, uh, or your device, to the book of Acts, chapter 17. Acts 17. Trotting along. <laughs> uh, we're not setting any speed records, but we're covering it. And um, that's one of the things I love about teaching verse by verse. Uh, you know, you, you go as far as you can and you pick it up next week. So uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 10 this morning. But I want to talk about a little bit of background first uh, as we uh, as we get started. And just in, in uh, looking at the Apostle Paul here on his second missionary journey, as he is traveling about the Roman Empire freely, because he was a Roman citizen as well as a Jew, uh, he, it, it seems like he's hitting his stride. Uh, he's understanding that he'd have to have a different approach, uh, whether he was dealing with a predominantly Jewish audience or a predominantly Gentile audience. We see that if it's a Jewish audience, if there are Jews in the town, if there's more than 10, he goes to the synagogue because it gives him a launching point. He's talking to people that are already oriented somewhat towards wanting to understand God's word, which was the Old Testament. That's what they had in those days. And so he was able to go in to begin there. Now, when there wasn't uh, a synagogue in town, he would go to the marketplace. Or in the case of Philippi, he, there was no synagogue. He went down to the riverbank. Uh, he found that there was a place that customarily people went to pray. And so there he, we saw the birth of the church at Europe uh, on the side of a river. <laughs> As he went down there, there was a God-fearing Gentile woman from Thyatira named Lydia, remember. Uh, she and her whole household had come to faith in Christ. And then going along in Philippi, uh, after considerable persecution... Uh, hardship, really, at the hands of the city's magistrates. They'd seen uh, he and Silas were thrown in jail, and then that, as a result of that, the city's magistrates realized they were Roman citizens. Uh-oh, we're in trouble. <laughs> and so, uh, through that, the entire family, including the Philippian jailer himself, had, again, they had come to Christ. So, we saw that at that point, there was a fascinating turn of events because Paul leverages his Roman citizenship and obtains a public apology from the magistrates, uh, as well as the legitimization of the church at Philippi. So uh, great stuff going on there. And so after that, Paul and Silas said they went to Lydia's house and then they left. So Paul and Silas and Timothy, left. they actually left Luke at Philippi and they traveled on to Thessalonica, where we were studying last week, which is the capital of Macedonia, which is now northern Greece. So they were up there. We'll look at some maps in a little bit. So being a larger city, we saw Paul, as his habit was, as his custom was, he heads straight to the synagogue, where uh, he systematically lays down one Old Testament passage after another. And what he would do is he'd say, look, this is what it says in the Psalms, or this is what it says in the prophets. Now, let me tell you about Jesus and let me explain to you why he's the Messiah. 
we looked at that. We looked at they, they had in their minds, they, the only way they could reconcile it was they had two messiahs. One was the suffering servant. One was the king of the nations. How do you get that reconciled? Well, there's two. No, no. And he would tell them, no, there's only one. Because he came and he died as the suffering servant and he's coming back to rule the nations. And so he was able to start laying these things out to the people. And it's a great, many people were, were, the lights were coming on. We're told that as a result there in Thessalonica, that some of the Jews have been persuaded, uh, a large number of God-fearing Greeks, uh, along with a significant number of prominent women, trusted Christ. So yet the Jews who hadn't been persuaded there at Thessalonica, uh, just again recapping quickly last week, out of envy... They went to the marketplace, they recruited some thugs, <laughs> some, some guys that you know, their whole life was standing around holding up a street corner or something. Uh, but they were literally rabble-rousers uh, who in turn set the city in an uproar. They got everybody upset. Man, oh man, these guys coming in, they're preaching another God, they're another, you know, Caesar's no longer it. And yeah, they, they just made a mess. As a result, they attacked the home of a guy named Jason, looking for Paul and Silas. They can't find him there. So they arrest Jason and a bunch of his buddies, take him down before the, the magistrates uh, on trumped up charges. And when they can't really hold them for any good reason, they have them post bond and they let them go. And that's where we left off last week. It, with verse nine, it says, when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So as we start off this morning in verse 10, we're going to see the scene shifts again. Uh, that's it for Thessalonica. Now it's time for Paul and Silas to move on. Things got a little hostile for them back there. In verse 10, it says, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. There they go. <laughs> now, a couple of things, a couple of maps here. This first map shows, uh, actually it shows all the towns that we've been looking at. Philippi and then the two small towns in Thessalonica there in the green line between Thessalonica and Berea. And we'll go to the second map, which is really a close-up of that. And it shows uh, the distance between Thessalonica and Berea. It wasn't very great. It was only about 30 miles uh, and so it, it, they travel west to Thessalon, or excuse me, uh, they travel west from Thessalonica to Berea, <laughs> twisted up in my head. Uh, and there, I think something interesting that I found in First Thessalonians chapter two was that evidently. Paul hoped to return to Thessalonica when things cooled off. Uh, he, this wasn't very far. They only went, like I said, 30 miles. And, and so I think that because he had only had three Sabbaths at Thessalonica, they were there for a very short time, and he was just in his mind, I believe he was just getting started. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 and 18 tell us this. And he, Paul is writing now, he's in Corinth as he writes this, he's writing back to the church at Thessalonica where they had just left as we're looking at this in the book of Acts. 
So it says, but we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart. In other words, we're not there with you physically, but our hearts are there with you. We endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you. Even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. Interesting. You mean the great apostle Paul, the guy that was you know, marching into half the towns in the Roman Empire and turning them upside down for Christ that Satan hindered him? Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Uh, they had to be smuggled out of town under the cover of darkness. Uh, in order to avoid the Jews and their thugs and the people that had been stirred up against them back in Thessalonica. Uh, that was part of what Paul is talking about, about the hindrance that Satan was bringing. He was using regular people to accomplish his ends. He wanted to block the gospel going out. Now, Paul's concern was for the people. Uh, he wanted to be sure that they understood uh, that while he couldn't be with them physically, that his heart certainly was with them. That he, that they meant something. They mattered to him. And he wanted to assure them, as we see here in, in 1 Thessalonians, uh, that the reason was not a lack of love or desire in his heart. That wasn't why he wasn't coming back. They're wondering, where is he? He said he'd be back. Or, you know, perhaps there were conversations that went on. We don't know, but we do know what he writes in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, but he says that it's, it's not that. There was an orchestrated uh, effort by Satan to thwart the work that they were doing. And it didn't just happen once. He says it happened time and again. It was a repeated thing. Now I want to talk about this for a bit. Uh, because the fact that Satan hindered them is more than coincidental. Uh, and, and folks... Hopefully, as we go through this, you'll see that the things that we see going on in our world that looks like evil is winning, <laughs> and it does. A lot of days I wake up and if I'm not careful, I can get totally bummed out. I can just be discouraged thinking, man, oh man, nobody gets held accountable. All, there's all this evil. These people are just advancing these agendas and, you know, it, 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 and it angers me and all of that. Well, folks, you got to understand something. Uh, I was looking at a, a book by a guy by the name of Erwin Lutzer. He, he's done some great works. And I know Harvey's smiling because he and I both like him. <laughs> uh, he wrote a book uh, called God's Devil. Uh, the subtitle is The Incredible Story of How Satan's Rebellion Serves God's Purposes. And I think that's what's going on here. Uh, what he says in the book, he says, The enemy roams about but on God's leash, uh, which I think is just a great quote. Now, there's something of a mystery here, and I want to be careful, okay? you got to understand, Satan is evil, evil, evil in the most absolute sense of the word. I don't want to paint him in any other light. Like, oh, he's just this emissary of God's. No, that's not what's being said. Because he comes to lie and to steal and destroy. And we know that. That's what God's word proclaims. And we see that over and over down through the ages. It's important to remember that he doesn't do anything that God doesn't allow. And that's a mystery. I don't understand it. I will freely admit. I'm going to sit up here in the pulpit and go, I don't know. How does that work? I don't know. 
I'm not God, but I can trust that God has given us, even though I don't have that information, that information is not revealed in his word, but that he has given us enough. In Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Jesus tells Peter, uh, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. After Peter had been humbled by his own failures, Jesus restores him, commissions him to lead his flock. Interesting. In Genesis chapter 50, one of my favorite passages in all of the Old Testament, we see Joseph in Egypt, a very powerful man. He has risen to prominent. He's like the prime minister. He's right under Pharaoh. He's dealing with his brothers. They'd come down to Egypt from Israel because there had been a drought and they're looking for food. They're, they don't know how they're going to make it. And there they end up in the very presence of their brother. They don't know that it's their brother. These are the same brothers that had dumped him in a hole as a child and left him there to be taken away by slave traders. These are the same brothers who had soaked his coat of many colors with goat's blood and taken it to dad and said, oh, look what happened to Joseph. Just as a side note, you think your family's dysfunctional? (laughs) Oh, man. it, it amazes me. I look at the, the whole families of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I think, oh God, there's hope for me. There's hope for us. <laughs> the point is, is there in Genesis 50, when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, he says something really interesting. In Genesis fifty twenty, he states, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many souls alive. Here's the point, gang. Satan wanted to get Peter out of the way to disqualify him as someone who was potentially useful to God. Yet Jesus would use Peter's own failures to humble him, to cause him to be more reliant upon God and less reliant upon himself. Remember, he went from, oh, I would never do like these other guys to standing there at the shore and Jesus saying, do you love me more than these? And I believe he was pointing to the guys. I don't think he was pointing to the 153 fish. (laughs) Do you love me more than these? You you shouldn't act like it back there at the enemy's fire when the girl, when you're cursing, carrying on. He was humbled. Satan wanted to compromise Joseph's brothers. He wanted to compromise the nation of Israel. And that's who he and his brothers were at that point. And he wanted to get Joseph out of the way. But God would use his brother's sin to preserve the entire nation. How does that work? Again, I don't know, but it does. Finally, Satan wanted to get Jesus on that cross, and he did. However, the father was at work throughout. He would use the death of his son as a substitutionary atonement for your sins and mine, for the sins of the world. And in that, he would actually judge. The the ruler of this world has been judged. He was judged at the cross. The very one that wanted to get Jesus up there got judged through it. Figure that out. I believe that Satan wanted to hinder the gospel through the persistent. I mean, if you've been with us in the study of Acts, or if you've gone through the book yourself before, you see that every time Paul turns around, they're trying to kill him. They're beating him up. They're dragging him out of the city, leaving him for dead. I mean, every time you, you see this guy step up, 
either the religious guys, the, the, I call them the creepy religious guys, or the government was trying to squash him. They were trying to, to get rid of him. And I believe that Satan, he's trying to hinder the gospel through these guys, through the hardship which Paul and his companions experienced. Yet, when he was repeatedly prevented from returning to Thessalonica, what did Paul do? He began to write letters. First Thessalonians is thought to be, by most scholars, the, the very first letter that Paul wrote back to the churches that he had planted. He would travel from Thessalonica to Berea. He wanted to go back to Thessalonica. I truly believe that. And First Thessalonians indicates that. But he was hindered from returning. So he goes from Berea to Athens and from Athens to Corinth. And we'll see that when we get to chapter 18. From Corinth, Paul would write two letters back to the Thessalonians. And guess who gets the benefit of that? Yeah, you and me. And countless people down through the ages as that has come into play, as that took place. And it started because Satan was attacking Paul. We see the same thing uh, with Paul's imprisonment in Rome. Nearly 10 years later, uh, we call them the prison epistles. I mean, that's what they're called in the New Testament. The, the books, uh, the letters to the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians, and, and Philemon. They're all called prison epistles because they're written from prison. Why were they written? Because Paul was in jail. He couldn't go visit them. What happened as a result? We get the benefit of a great deal of the New Testament because of the opposition that he experienced. I think it's interesting too that Paul's claim was never that he was a prisoner of Rome. You don't see him say that. You look in the book of Ephesians and he says, no, I'm not a prisoner of Rome. I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul got this concept. He got that he was there because while Jesus wasn't endorsing the evil of the men that put him there or the evil of the men that would eventually execute him, that he was allowing it. And that he was working his purposes through it. Folks, you've got to understand this. When you look out and you see, again, you see how screwed up our world is. You see how messed up things are. You look in social media. You look in, in the news, so-called. And you see how things are so upside down and they're careening out of control. You could lose hope. You could start to really begin to strive and, and to think, man... This is never going to get better. You've got to understand that God is working his purposes through it. And at some point, and it may not be until we get to heaven, it'll make sense to us. We have the advantage of, of looking through the lens of scripture and looking back at these things and looking back at how these things unfold and to be able to take these principles from the scripture. And this is a nuanced principle, but it's very definitely there. And to be able to take encouragement in our own lives, in our own hearts. And that doesn't mean that we go out and we commit evil just so that God can do his stuff. I mean, that's not what's being said. Uh, as a matter of fact, Paul addresses that in Romans, I think it's in chapter 6. He says, so well, and I'm paraphrasing, in light of God's grace, can we just go out and sin? And he says, God forbid, may it never be. How so, shall someone who has died to sin still live in it? 
So it's not about that. But it is about being able to look out and to be encouraged and to understand that, yeah, Satan blocked Paul from going back to Thessalonica. And so what he did instead was write letters. And those have come down through the ages to us as part of the New Testament. Those along with a lot of other things. So just great stuff. So verse 10, again, he says, when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Uh, after arriving in Berea, Paul and Silas, they don't waste any time. As a matter of fact, the text, the original text implies that as soon as they arrived, even after an all night journey, <laughs> they immediately went to the synagogue. They couldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't shut this guy up. He wanted to be able to share. He wanted to be able to start laying it out again. And there they begin to demonstrate, literally to place beside. We looked at that last week. That word demonstrate means to lay lay down alongside of, to demonstrate, to set before these people the gospel from the Old Testament scriptures. This is what it says. This is what happened. This is the person in the work of Jesus. We talked about the person in the work. This is what it says here. This is Jesus. I want to, I want you to connect the dots, gang. And that's what they were doing. And it was, a, a, I would love to have sat in on some of that. But you want to know something? There are large sections of the New Testament that that's exactly what is done. That's part of the reason that I personally believe, okay, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to stray a little bit here, that the book of Hebrews was written by the apostle Paul. Now there are people that will say, no, 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 no. It, and it doesn't say. All right, and, and you might have a different opinion, and that's fine. Don't send me emails, please. But the point is, is that the book of Hebrews is just that. It's, it's look at this in the Old Testament. Now look at Jesus. He's better. Look at this in the Old Testament. Now look at Jesus. And the entire book, it's like, it's like a ping pong match. You, his Old Testament, Jesus Christ. Old Testament, Jesus Christ. Old Testament. And it's a fabulous study because it's exactly the pattern that is laid out here in the book of Acts as to how Paul went about reaching people with the gospel. Verse 11, these were, he's talking to the Bereans, or Luke is talking about the Bereans at this point. He says, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. If you don't have Acts 17.11 underlined, you should, or memorize it. This is one of the great verses in all of God's word, in my opinion. These people were not going to just take his word for it. They were going to search it out for themselves. Now, the word fair-minded here in verse 11, it literally translates noble-minded or open-minded, uh, in different translations, it's rendered a little differently. Uh, but what Luke is saying here is the Bereans readily received the word. They were spiritually hungry. They wanted to know. They went about it with the right mindset. That was what, why they were noble-minded. They, were, they understood that, yeah, they could just trash the scripture. And a lot of people down through the ages have, still do. Oh, I'm tempted to rabbit trail on something I heard not too long ago, but I would just be wasting our time. (laughs) All right. But the point is, the the people, the attitude of their heart was, we want to know. 
We want to understand. We want to get the meaning that you're trying to connect here, Paul. And, and, and yet we're not going to just take your word for it. We want to search these things out. We want to go back to the scriptures. And evidently they had copies of the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the, the Old Testament. And, I mean, we're in Gentile territory here, and that was the popular thing that the, the scriptures they had. And so they would go and they would search the scriptures. However, they wanted to back up what Paul was saying. And folks, I, I can't stress this enough. This is healthy. This is good. Now, those of you that know me know that I'm very fond of the saying, I didn't write the paper. I'm just throwing it in your yard. All right. I'm a divine paper boy. That's that's my job. But I want to expand on that metaphor a little bit. Um, a diligent paper boy, he'll be able to land that paper on your front porch nearly every time. <laughs> He's good. I don't know how he does it. He just throws that thing out. Man, it hits right where it's supposed to. But there are times where for whatever reason, the best and with the best intentions, that that baby's going to end up in the sprinkler. Uh, in the neighbor's yard. Maybe it'll end up in your living room via the window that's now broken. (laughs) The point is, don't take what I'm saying as your source for truth. Don't do it. Please don't. Yeah, and to be fair, trust that my heart is to convey this information accurately. My heart is to give you the truth uh, and it, it makes me kind of bonkers when I see preachers embellish and, and stuff. It's just like, no, no, no. God doesn't need your help. But understand that we're, each of us is called to be a student of the word. Check it out for yourself. The Bereans did. The result of them doing that, we see in verse 12, he says, Therefore many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. The word therefore always refers back to what's just been said. And so he's saying, based on the fact that these people were being diligent, they were searching the scriptures daily to see what was being said and to verify what was being said is that was actually what was in the the scripture itself. And they were coming, the lights were coming on. The, the, the docks were getting connected. They were understanding that Jesus truly is, was, and is the Christ. The Son of God, the one who went to the cross to atone for my sin. In verse 4, we're told that some in Thessalonica came to believe uh, back there. But now being more open-minded, we see here there's a, a different word. It says many came to believe. The gospel was going out. People were engaging in the study of God's word. Lives are being impacted, changed. I think it's interesting too that here in verse 12, Luke mentions Jews and Greeks, prominent women as well as men, all coming together with a common faith. And that would be a faith that would erase the lines that existed between them. In Galatians 3.28, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. He's not talking about gender ideology. He's talking about the fact that when we have a common faith, that, that the gospel, understanding that, the, the, that Jesus himself binds us together in ways that supersede any of the differences between us. 
He talks about Jews and Greeks. He talks about male, female. He talks about slave or free. He says none of that stuff should be at the forefront in your considerations as you come together under the banner of Christ. I look around, uh, whether it's in a smaller church like this or in a large church, and I think about, I think, Lord, how could you bring so many diverse people together from so many different backgrounds, so many different economic status or stature, from so many different walks of life, with so many different pasts, how could you bring us together and actually bring a group like this together and that we actually love to be around each other, that we want to hang out together? It's because there's no distinction in Christ. That's part of the wonder of the gospel. It's part of the fact that his Holy Spirit binds our hearts together in ways that the externals, they just don't matter. We'll talk about that more uh, as we look at Athens uh, when Paul is there uh, on Mars Hill in the next week or two. I don't know if I'm going to get through the whole thing next week. <laughs> no promises there. So through this, the church in Berea was born. And I remember all the while the enemy is once again crouching at the door told in verse 13, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. We're not letting those guys get away with this. They're not that far away. I think we should send a contingent. We should send a delegation and let them know who's boss. They do. Verse 14, the immediately, then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So the question in my mind is, why was it so important for the Jews to come all the way to Berea from Thessalonica? They got rid of them there. They're not bugging them anymore. And I think the answer is bigger than the geography, the 30 miles that lie between them. And I believe that's because the answer is because while the gospel isn't hostile towards human authority, and it's not, uh, both civil and spiritual, by the way, The gospel supersedes it, and men don't like it, because our allegiance is not to the church. Our allegiance is not to the state. Our allegiance is to our king, and that drives men nuts. It drove the Jews nuts to the point where they were like, we're not letting them get away with it. Yeah, and <laughs> they were filled with envy. Remember, it says that it, back in Thessalonica last week, you we looked at, they, they saw people abandoning Judaism. They didn't care about the content of the message. They just cared that there were more people going after them than were going after, after what they had to say. The power they wielded over them was greatly dimish, diminished as a result of these guys coming in with the gospel. Also, a common misplaced complaint from the secular world was, at that time, we've seen it and we'll see it again, and is that Christians are no longer subject to and therefore rebellious towards human forms of government. The Apostle Paul, and I want to caution you on this, because our nation is divided, and I'm not saying I get up in the morning and I clap my hands, and I think, yippee, (laughs) the liberals are winning or whatever, The Apostle Paul is clear in Romans chapter 13. He says, flatly, be subject to the governing authorities because because you're subject to Christ. Because I'm subject to Christ, I'm going to submit to the governing authorities. Now, we've talked about 
That doesn't mean that if the government is compelling me to do something that goes against what God's word has to say, that goes against my conscience as a Christian, that that doesn't mean that I have to go with that over this. You also got to remember too that in the Old Testament, God used other nations to judge Israel. And he used, (laughs) then he would say, what are you doing to my people? And he'd thrash them. God never uses the church as an instrument for judgment. Don't think for a minute that these guys that go down and you know, fire shots at abortion clinic doctors or the people that go down and they, they make these railing accusations and, and, and physically harm others in the name of Christ, that that's okay. It's not okay. The Bible's clear. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, not yours. So we've got to be balanced in our approach on this. There's not room for, for radical political insurrection because you're a believer. There's definitely room to stand up and to say that's not right as a result of the things we see going on. I think about Martin Luther and for all of his shortcomings, if you read his, his uh, a biography on Martin Luther, he had a lot of issues. <laughs> but one thing that can be said is that he searched the scriptures. He did like the Bereans. As a result, he nailed his 95 theses to the, the Wittenberg church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Initiated the Protestant Reformation. He said, this is not right. And it was mainly about indulgences and all of the stuff that the Catholics had piled on to solid biblical understanding. So what was the Catholic church's response? the Council of Trent, (laughs) and you don't have to know theology and uh, church history and all that, but essentially it's where the the Catholic Church, they reaffirmed the authority that they had as the church. They didn't want their authority messed with. It's like I'm telling you. And they condemned Protestant theology. And they actually convened a council to do it. And that still stands. It's it's interesting, too, because religionists, and I don't call them spiritual people, I'm not making a distinction there, they mimic the world and they project hierarchical power. It's power authority. That's what the world runs on, power authority. You do your job and you don't get fired. That's power authority. And I'm not saying that it's necessarily a bad thing, but that's not how the kingdom runs. The kingdom runs on a whole different dynamic. God's divinely inspired word projects servant authority. And in God's economy, that's where the lowest, the least, the last is usually the one that's steering the ship. It's not about power authority. We, the church, are a peace-loving and law-abiding people. At least we ought to be. Or we live in a world that is increasingly hostile towards the people of God. Why? Because we serve the highest authority. His name is Jesus. And they don't like it. And that's too bad. I'm going to pull a Forrest Gump and say that's all i got to say about that. So as Paul moved on to Athens here, Silas and Timothy would remain in Berea. They, they, they stuck around. And we're not sure what compelled them to do that. Uh, if it was simply in the best interest of the church. Remember, you've got a, you've got a, a newborn church there in Berea. Or it could have been that it was just logistically the exposure was too high if they're traveling in a small group because these men are out to kill them. Yeah, we don't know, but we do know that in God's sovereign will, 
These guys remained, and you better believe that they were doing the work of <laughs> promoting the gospel and, and getting the church grounded as they were. Uh, Timothy was uh, was uh, Paul's protege. Silas had been an elder at the church in Jerusalem way back. And so, I mean, he was leaving that church in good hands. And regardless, Paul is traveling alone now. He's accompanied only by the guys who are conducting him to Athens. Now, some just logistically, some say this trip would be overland uh, along the coast. Uh, most agree that he went by boat. It's about 285 miles from Berea to Athens. It wasn't a short trip. And it would have been easier that, uh, this is, they, they uh, excuse me, in verse 14, that they sent Paul away to go to the sea. Uh, and yet, we don't know. Verse 15, it says, Those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and received a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed. And then they departed. So, uh, arriving safely at Athens, the men who had brought Paul there, they're going to return to Berea. And Paul gives them instructions. He says, look, I want you to send Timothy and Silas straight away. Have them come and join me here. Now, they won't rejoin Paul until he arrives at Corinth. We'll see that in chapter 18. And that's where they rejoin him. And then they spend a good, probably a year and a half at Corinth, I think is what it says. Uh, But we'll get to that. So verse 16, it says, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. And that's an interesting term. It's the only place this is used in the New Testament. His spirit was provoked within him. When he saw the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. So now Athens is a huge city and there are synagogues and numerous marketplaces, numerous town squares. And so he begins as this itinerant preacher to just hop along and to go from one to the other because he sees that both demographics are needing to be reached in this city. Now, Athens' former glory had faded from its zenith over the past several hundred years. Now, a few hundred years before this, during the time of Alexander the Great and uh, a lot of other things historically that were going on, Athens had been the center of the world. It's where a great deal, even today, of Western civilization came to be. Uh, It was still, even after all this time, Athens was still the center uh, for culture. Greek culture was very dominant in that day in the Roman Empire. For science and learning, uh, also for pagan religious practices. Uh, The pantheism of the Romans and the Greeks was evident everywhere. They were pantheistic. In other words, what it means, pantheistic, it means that God is all over. And they had, (laughs) it's estimated there were more than 3,000 altars and shrines just in the city. Uh, That there were more idols, which could be a trinket they hung around your neck or it could be a big statue. But the idols that they worshipped were more numerous than the people themselves. This was a place that was wholly given over to idol worship, to false god worship. Paul shows up in Athens 
and his spirit was provoked within him. He, this is a visceral thing for him. He looks around and he's just like, I, this is just overwhelming. And I have to believe that he could see the darkness that was represented in it. That his spirit was provoked within him means that it, uh, he was deeply troubled. False religion, false gods, a culture that is just messed up. And it motivated him to begin to proclaim the gospel. Again, his answer to that wasn't, hey, you guys need, let me institute some reforms. I know, let's pass some laws. You know, I was doing jail ministry for a period of time. And one of the things I would tell the inmates is, guys, they call this a correctional institution. And I'd have 60 or 70 inmates in, in the room with me and another pastor. And I'd say, I want you to raise your hand if you're being corrected. <laughs> I never had anybody raise their hand. This is not about that. It's not about correction. It's not about uh, legislation. It's about transformation. It's about the transformation of the human heart that can only come from the inside out. All of those other things are from the outside coming at a person. But when someone turns to Christ, when they genuinely embrace Christ and they embrace Jesus as Lord, I don't care what their background looks like. And I genuinely don't. Because there is a change, there is a shift, there is a radical thing that takes place within the heart of a man or a woman who does that, that is unmistakable. It doesn't mean that we all line up and look the same, but it does mean that when Jesus gets a hold of my heart and when I am filled with the Holy Spirit, my life is different. Paul looks out and he sees these people chasing after all of these worthless gods, lowercase g, and his spirit is provoked within him. He is just grieved and and perhaps even a little angry. I don't know, but I do know this. He understands that the way to fix that is to begin to preach the gospel, is to begin to share the love of Christ, is to begin to lay down the truth of Jesus, who he was and what he did alongside their, their scriptures. And to say, let me show you about this, about the man. I bought a new hat a few months ago, right after I had my heart attack. It's like my old hat was all sweaty looking and stuff. And I, so I went on Amazon. I found this hat. It's a cross and it says Jesus in the cross thing. And I've been, it, it, it's actually, it's been kind of fun. And I find myself having to be careful that I'm not grumpy. But, um, <laughs> cause I can be grumpy. At any rate, I'll, I'll like be in the grocery store line and somebody will go, I like the hat. Or I was at, I was at rehab one time and this lady said, I like your hat. I was at, at Winco Foods in McMinnville not long ago and, and the guy behind me, you know, was just like chatting and stuff with the, the checkout lady and, and he goes, man, I love the hat. And I've gotten in the habit of saying, of responding, well, I love the man. And, and they're like, right on, or, or, or kind of looking at me like, what are you talking about? You love the man. <laughs> but anyway, my point is a changed life changes the life. And that's not my opinion. Let your light so shine before men that they notice that they glorify your father who's in heaven. That's what Jesus said. So we're going to pick it up there next week. 
Uh, I've got uh, a couple of things I want to bounce off of you all before we wrap up. Uh, Quickly here, I'll just go through them. The first is that spiritual warfare is real. (laughs) And you probably don't need me to tell you that, but it is. What's our response? First Peter chapter five, verses eight and nine. He says, be sober. He's not talking about not being drunk, although that's a really good idea because that's sin. He's saying, be sober minded, essentially. Be vigilant because your adversary, the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He says, resist him steadfast in the faith knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So remember, as I mentioned, uh, what Lucer said, Satan is roaming about, but he's on God's leash. Therefore, uh, skipping over to Ephesians chapter 6, put on the full armor of God, the breastplate of righteousness, your righteousness, righteousness, not your own, but that comes from Christ himself. The gospel of peace. We're peace-loving, law-abiding people, and the world hates it. So do religious, creepy people. The shield of faith. I trust Christ. In the middle of all this mess, I hold up the shield of faith. The helmet of salvation. I am sure where I am going. This heart stopped beating once this last year. (laughs) The Lord willing, it won't do that again for a while. But I know that when I take my last breath here, I'll be in the presence of the Lord. What a great encouragement in the middle of this mess. What an awesome thought. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Understand, you cannot be duped if you are paying attention to this. It's worth noting, by the way, when we're told to put on the full armor of God, nowhere are we told to take it off. Put it on, leave it on. I have a friend that kind of does this mime thing every day that uh, shared with me years ago that that they, they kind of do this mime of putting on the armor of God every day. And I just think that's awesome. It's like, yeah, well, good. Good for you. Don't take it off. <laughs> Anyway, the second thing I wanted to to run by you guys before we wrap up is the Bereans have come, and this is true, they've come down through history as the standard bearers. You want to hear somebody say, oh, you're being like the Bereans. Why? Because it's synonymous with good, safe, edifying, builds you up, Bible study. Flip side of that, there are a lot of false teachers out there. I was tempted to go down a couple of roads, but I'm not going to because I just want to keep this again, keep it edifying. But there's a lot of junk out there. There's a lot of spiritual junk food. I look at it like (laughs) I used to love, uh, when I was a teenager, I'd walk across the street from the gas station I worked at, and I would buy an entire package of donuts and eat them in one sitting. No wonder I have diabetes. Didn't do a thing for me nutritionally. It tickled my senses, it hit my sweet tooth, but it was junk food. Folks, there's a lot of spiritual junk food out there. Don't eat it. (laughs) It's not good for you. False teachers spring up when people fail to be like the Bereans. And I love that part of what defines us as a church body here is we are utterly committed to the word of God. I like that. 
uh, I can make mistakes. You all know that. And sometimes it's innocent. I'm not saying that you know, that makes me a false teacher <laughs> if I goof up. I remember, yeah, it, 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 sometimes I miss the porch altogether. You know what I mean? Uh, one time I did a study and uh, my, my, my buddy, uh, who's now the senior pastor, he and I were both assistant pastors at the same church at the same time for a number of years. And I was doing a study on Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra was the one that when the children of Israel came back from captivity that he re-implemented temple worship. And he was the guy that was in charge of the spiritual affairs of the people. Nehemiah was the guy that was sort of in charge of the physical aspect. He's the one that rebuilt the wall around the city and all of that. And somehow in my little brain, I got their names transposed. And I did this whole teaching about how Ezra had gone and rebuilt the walls around the city and Nehemiah that, yeah, yeah, they found the scripture and he's out there and he's getting the temple. And, and it was like, and my buddy came up afterwards and he goes, wow. <laughs> I said, I'm kind of feeling maybe a little proud, you know, it's like, he goes, wow, that was really some new information. I said, what do you mean? <laughs> and he said, I had no idea that Nehemiah did all that. And I had no idea that Ezra did all of that. And I was like, oh, and I went and I listened to the recording. I was like, I got up until the next week and had to apologize to everybody and all that. I mean, it happens. That doesn't mean that I'm a false pe- teacher. It means I'm a goofball sometimes. <laughs> Forget. But there are false teachers out there. And don't be duped. Check it out. The third thing, and uh, this is important, is the gospel. Therefore, God's people, by extension, are often perceived as a threat to both the religious authorities and civil authorities. Heed the words and the warnings of our king. I want to read something that Jesus himself says that bears out both sides of this. Matthew chapter 10 Verses 16 to 20, Jesus is telling his men, he says, Behold, I send you out a sheep in the midst of wolves. He says, Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. He says, But beware of men. And he goes into two things. He says, For the first thing, he says, They'll deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. That's the religious guys. And again, I, I... tongue-in-cheek call them the creepy religious guys, but there's, there's a lot of what passes off as spirituality that's just false religion. He says, they'll deliver you up. In verse 18, he says, uh, and here's a second, he says, you'll be brought before governors and kings. That's the civil guys. They don't like the church. They don't like that your allegiance is not to them. Your allegiance is to our king. And Jesus warns about it. He says, they'll deliver you, you'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, don't worry about how or what you should say, for it'll be given to you in that hour what you should speak, for it is not what you speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. So take courage, gang. And I'm not saying you're going to walk out of here and it's going to be hostile and people are going to be taking pot shots at you and all that. 
But we do live in a world that's increasingly more hostile. And, and I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't warn from time to time that that's the case. And it is the case. Understand. Harmless. He says, wise as serpents, harmless as doves. That's not a balance I can walk in my own flesh. Like anybody else, I get upset. But as I yield to the working of the Holy Spirit, that's what he wants to do. Understand that. Understand that God is utterly in control. And it might look like Satan's winning, but he's not. He says, not you who speak, the spirit of your father who speaks in you. As we study God's word, as we understand that Satan goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, we understand that he doesn't do anything that God doesn't permit. And, and that's a mystery. We won't understand it, the sight of heaven. We don't understand how that works. But we do take understanding and take courage with the fact that that's true. And so it might look like they're winning, folks. It might look really bad. It might get more bleak. I mean, you know, I hear the term World War III thrown around a lot more now than I did even a couple of months ago. But my king is bigger than all of that. He's in control. Take heart. Don't get so overwhelmed by the stuff that it, that it, that, that it causes you to have an attitude that's unbecoming for a child of God. Understand that he's got it and he is in control and he is working his purposes through it and sometimes it doesn't look like it. Didn't look like it for Paul. Man, I got run out of Thessalonica. I want to go back. I can't. Satan keeps attacking and I keep getting hindered. I guess I'll just go somewhere else and I'll write him some letters. (laughs) I love that. I love the way that the New Testament came to us through adversity. Often he uses the adversity that we're going through, whether it's through circumstances or through direct attack from the enemy or whatever it is to accomplish his purposes in our lives. Hold on to that. Be encouraged by that. Let's pray. Father, uh, just as we look at this and we study through the book of Acts, my heart is encouraged, Lord, that, that you are in control. And we see, Lord, we get the vantage point of being able to look at these things and see how your purposes have been worked out then. And we apply that to our lives to trust that your purposes are going to be worked out now. No matter how bleak it might look or how hostile people may be, that we simply are your children and that our allegiance is to the King. So we're thankful this morning for that. We're thankful, Lord, that you love us, that you sent your Son to die for us, and that simply in trusting Him that we have hope. And not just for this life, but in life eternal. So Lord, help us to keep our eyes fixed on the prize, Lord. Eternity in your presence, knowing this life is but a vapor. It appears for a moment and then it's gone. And yet, Lord, help us to be those people that are committed, dedicated to making this life count for you and for your kingdom. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.